Good evening. It's good to be with you tonight. So glad that uh, you extended the invitation to me. And I hope that the words that we will talk about this evening will be encouraging to you and maybe helpful to you as we seek to implement the principles of servant leadership in our lives. One of the things that you may already know is that whenever the Bible uses the word deacon, uh, it uses it in a technical sense. That is, a deacon, of course, is someone who is a leader, someone recognized to occupy some position of leadership. But in the original, the word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon, occurs far more often than the English word deacon is found in our English translations. Uh, in fact, the word diakonos actually really rarely means deacon. It occurs some 27 times in the New Testament, but in most English translations, the actual word deacon is found only five times. Now, what that tells us is that most of the time when the Bible describes what the work of a deacon is, it's communicating in a non-technical way. It's something that is expected out of every Christian everywhere that we can do the work of a servant leader. And, and by the way, I think that's a, a pretty good translation of the Greek word diakonos, is a servant leader. This word is translated minister. It's also translated servant on a number of occasions in the New Testament. And so the idea that a deacon is someone who occupies a specialized position only really relates to very specific contexts with two considerations uh, in mind. Number one is whenever the word diakonos means deacon, it clearly occurs in contexts where leadership positions are being described. We obviously think about 1 Timothy chapter 3 as an example, or Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, where Paul greets the church at Philippi along with the elders and the deacons. And so in those contexts, it's quite clear. But there's a second consideration that is just as important. And that is when the word diakonos is translated deacon, it always is found in the plural. We usually stress the fact that the Bible always describes a plurality of elders in the Lord's church, right? You've, you've heard this point made on a number of occasions. You cannot have a biblical leadership and have a single elder because the Bible always talks about elders in the plural. But the same is also true of deacons. Just as a church cannot be biblically sound having only a single elder, a church can also not be biblically sound with a single deacon. Now, this is especially helpful in passages such as Romans chapter 16 and verse 1, uh, a verse that maybe you're familiar with where Phoebe is referred to as a diakonos of the church in Sincrea. You notice that passage? And a lot of people point to that and they, they say, well, you see there, there it is. The Bible authorizes the role of a female in the office of deacon because it says right there in English translations, either because the translators were misogynistic or because they're trying to cover up what the Apostle Paul really was trying to do. They, they translate it servant, but really that's deacon. But if we follow the principles on the screen, because it's a term in the singular, and the word diakonos used in the singular in the New Testament is always used in the non-technical sense of servant rather than in the official sense of deacon, then Romans 16 and verse 1 most obviously ought not to be understood in reference to a leadership role in the church. And, and that's just one of the examples of the kinds of insights we can gain through a study of this kind. 
Fundamentally, a diakonos in the New Testament simply refers to a servant, a role that every single one of us, regardless of age, regardless of gender, we can occupy. Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? You remember the church at Corinth was divided over who their favorite preacher was, and especially Paul and Apollos had their followers. And Paul says, well, who are we in the first place? Here's who we are. We are diakonoi, servants or ministers through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. In other words, Apollos and I are not anybody important. We're not anybody special. We are merely servant leaders for your benefit. Paul writes in Ephesians 3 and verse number 7 to give another example of this gospel, he says, I was made a diakonos, a minister or a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. What is he saying? Paul is saying that I am a servant of the gospel. The gospel is here and I am here. I have been blessed by the grace of God to work as a minister, serving you uh, as a leader in that cause for salvation. And so we can find throughout the New Testament, whenever the word deacon is used, it is used most clearly, most often, in a non-technical sense to refer to the responsibility that we all have to submit ourselves to a cause greater than ourselves. But along those same lines, we also need to stress another point, and that is you can be a servant of things that are evil just as well as things that are good. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse number 15, about the ministers who labor under the power of Satan. So it is no surprise, Paul says, if his servants, talking about the devil, also disguise themselves as servants, diakonoi, of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In other words, Paul recognizes that even Satan himself has deacons, has servants working on behalf of his mission to draw the world out of light and drag it into darkness. And so it's our responsibility to be the kind of ministers of light that God needs, ministers of the gospel, surrendering our will to his will and letting him reign in our lives in all that we do. That's what servant leaders must do. That's what every Christian must do. And so let's transition for a moment and look at Mark chapter 10 and see the lessons that Jesus himself leaves for us on this topic. Many of you know the passage where I'm going, Mark chapter 10. We're looking uh, really beginning in verse 42. The context begins a bit earlier, maybe in about verse 35 or so. But this is where Jesus, and the word deacon doesn't show up in English translations, but both the noun and the verb are prominent in this section in the original text. And so I think this does go right to the heart of how Jesus understood servant leadership. But if you look at Mark chapter 10, let's start in verse 42. This is after James and John had come to Jesus, you remember. And they asked him, whenever he establishes his earthly kingdom, because that's the way they were thinking, we want to be number one and number two. Grant us, they say, one to sit at your right hand and one to sit at your left. Now, now, Jesus, we don't care who's number one and who's number two, but we think that the two of us really ought to occupy the, the best positions. And then we know that the other apostles, when they heard this request, the Bible says they become 
indignant. They are frustrated. They are angry. They are ready to tear the sons of Zebedee apart for this request. And Jesus says, okay, okay. All right, guys, let's, let's talk about what leadership really means in the kingdom of God. And beginning in verse 42 of, of Mark 10, Jesus says as follows. He called them and said to, him, to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Notice the words that are used. The rulers, the authority, the lordship principle. The way that the world often views leadership is command and control. Once you are in a position of prominence, that gives you the right to dominate everybody else, to tell them what to do, to force them to bend to your will. That's how the Gentiles, Jesus says, view leadership. But watch in verse 43 what he says, but it shall not be so among you. That's not the way you are to think. And he goes on to instruct, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There are several lessons that we can learn from Jesus's words here about how all of us can stand up and be a leader in the world in which we live, in the communities in which we live, in the churches which we serve. The first principle is that Jesus's view of a leader is that a servant leader seeks influence over dominance. Now, it is absolutely true that power is something of a myth. Power doesn't really exist. We, what we do is we trick ourselves into thinking that whenever we get to a certain position in our organization, or maybe even some people think this way about the church, right? That, that if you could just get into the role of an elder, then you'll have real power. But power is a myth, isn't it? Because the only way that anyone really has power is if God allows them to have it. And if those who follow you are willing to ascribe that power to you. I am a father of three children, and I can tell you that I thought before I had children that fathers had power. I have since learned that is not the case. I have two daughters who often don't do what I tell them to do. Now, how do you figure out that problem? You know, you think you have power because of your position, but you really only have power when people are willing to listen. And we know that God is the author of all power. In fact, he says in Romans chapter 13, this is in verses one and two. Of course, we know that this passage is talking about government primarily, but there's a principle that is broader than that, where the Bible says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is, listen to it, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In other words, power doesn't really exist among human beings. It resides with the control that God has, and he assigns it to whomever he wills. You remember in Matthew 28 when Jesus declares in that wonderful passage we call the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
And so I'm telling you to go, therefore, and to make disciples and teach and all of those things that he says there. The fact is that Jesus has all authority. And we as human beings only have the authority he assigns to us. And so the idea that we have power because of our position is just one of the world's myths. Power comes only through the influence we can exercise with other people. And the fact is that influence doesn't come easily, does it? One of the things that I discovered very quickly as a teacher in a collegiate environment is they don't have to listen to you. In fact, this occurred my very first semester teaching, which is like 10 years ago. Um, it was a rather warm day, unseasonably warm, and a wasp got loose in the classroom. Now, I was lecturing as passionately as I could muster with all of my heart, and nothing I could do made me more attractive than that wasp. Uh, and and I, I found out really quickly, you know what? That wasp is the most important thing in this room at this moment. And so we um, borrowed a, a young lady's shoe and, and uh, ended his life uh, mercifully. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is you don't really have reason why people listen to you. It only comes by virtue of the influence you have. And influence is something that doesn't come by position. It comes by relationship. In fact, the word from which we get influence, the word in English, influence in Latin, means literally flowing into. Uh, I was with some friends uh, at the Shiloh Battlefield in Tennessee not too long ago, and uh, one of the things that I noticed is how they've got these cages of rocks that line the Mississippi River right there. And the reason for that is because the river slowly erodes the landscape away. And in a number of years, the river will eventually just take away the land and it will fall off into the river. And that's happened for uh, centuries now. And it's, it's easy for us to forget that our influence comes gradually. I was talking to somebody just the other day who told me about a man who was converted. And the person who converted him to Christ studied the Bible with him every single week for an entire year. And I wonder if over the course of that time, his case didn't necessarily become more rational. I'm quite confident it didn't become any more biblical than it was on the very first study. But what happened is a relationship of trust was developed over the course of that year that led that man to begin gradually to see the points that this man was making who was studying with him, that his life matched what he was teaching. It was a conversion of relationship, a conversion of influence, not merely a conversion of logic and rationality. We are stewards ultimately of the influence we have over other people. We know the Bible teaches us this, but in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse number 20, the Bible teaches whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. If you want to be a good person, spend time with good people, learn from them, learn to imitate them, and you will become good yourself. Of course, we also know the more famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, where Paul tells the Corinthians, don't be deceived. Evil company, what? Corrupts good morals. That is, the more you spend time with evil people, the more evil you become. One of the things that we see with our young people where I preach is that some of them begin, especially when they get into high school, to associate with people either by virtue of sports or other school activities, and they begin to develop unchristian friendships. And it's not too many years after that to their Bible attendance is beginning to suffer. They start to pull away from the youth group. They start to drift into worldliness. Well, it's no wonder 
The more we associate with worldly, unrighteous people, the more we're tempted to become worldly. And so as servant leaders, we need to kind of, we need to be the kind of people we want to see, to exercise our influence for the benefit of others so that they can become more Christ-like by following us. But another point that we find that Jesus teaches us here in Mark chapter 10 is that a servant leader aims at service over greatness. That we're quite happy not to be the most important person in the room. Uh, one, of, one of the people I know well, he's a, a wonderful man, but every time he talks to you, he's got to tell you all about himself and his most recent accomplishments. And uh, I, I joked to him one time, I said, I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings, but I feel like every time I talk to you, it's like reading the back of a baseball card. I got to get all your statistics. I like you the way you are. I don't need to hear about how great you are every time we talk. And I think he understood that in a good spirit. But the fact is that servant leaders, they understand that their lives are about giving something up for the sake of others, not about being great. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter tells us in verses 10 and 11 of that, of that passage, we often quote this because it's one of the clearest passages in the Bible that matches the speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent motto that we uh, hold dear. But this passage also teaches something just as important. As each has received a gift, Peter writes. Now, by the way, this implies that all of us have a gift. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As each has received a gift, use it to enhance himself. No. Use it to exalt yourself so that others will recognize your own greatness. No. Use it, Peter says, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. What's the point? The point is every single one of us has an opportunity through our unique, unique talents to bring about somebody else's good. And so let's do that. Let's do it by focusing on the word of God as we teach others. Do it by utilizing our special gifts in unique ways to help other people in the way that only we can help them. The statement is made by Charles Coulson. Nothing distinguishes the kingdoms of man from the kingdom of God more than their diametrically opposed views of the exercise of power. One seeks to control people the other to serve people. One promotes self, the other prostrates self. One seeks prestige and position, the other lifts up the lowly and despised. A servant leader is a person who never forgets that we exist to enhance the life of others and empower them to be better versions of themselves. But then the third lesson that Jesus teaches here is that a servant leader is willing to lower himself in order to rise. In the words of John Maxwell, a leader must be willing to give up in order to go up. That there is no way that any of us can ever reach a position of prominence or influence without first learning to serve. And that's because a leader ultimately must adopt the principles of humility. Humility is something that is rare in the world today. Because many people, if you watch the news or if you, especially if you follow a social media outlet like Twitter, 
you, you realize that people are competing for who can be the biggest victim. Have you noticed that? That everybody's looking to be offended by everything. And that anything that you say that hurts my feelings gives me license to be the ugliest human being in the world to you. Because the one unforgivable sin is to call sin, sin in the world today. Everybody's looking to be a victim. But servant leaders are willing to make themselves a victim. To accept that responsibility in order to propel others forward to better versions of themselves. Humble people, first of all, understand that when we lower ourselves, God will be the one to exalt us. We sing the words of this verse, right? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And what? He will, what? You can talk to me. He will lift you up. The fact of the matter is that whenever we surrender to God, he's the one who picks us up. He's the one who puts us on the mountaintop. No need to exalt yourself when the Lord is the one exalting you. We also understand that whenever we humble ourselves, we're much more open to criticism. Rather than seeking to be the victim and looking for our feelings to be hurt by something that somebody said that's offensive to us, we actually learn to listen to criticism and try to get better as a result. Proverbs 9 and verse 8 Proverbs has a lot to say about this, by the way, but just a couple of passages. In verse 8 of chapter 9, do not reprove a scoffer, Solomon advises, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. That's kind of a profound thought, isn't it? When you criticize somebody who truly embodies the principles of biblical wisdom, they will hung your neck. What am I trying to say? Hug your neck. They won't hung your neck. They will hug your neck. And they will thank you for taking the time to show them that kind of love. But we know a lot of people in the world don't abide by the biblical principles of wisdom. If you criticize them, they become defensive and they begin to attack. They look for ways to undermine you and ruin your life because everything has to be so personal. In Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, again, the Bible teaches, better is open rebuke than hidden love, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, don't trust people who are always kissing up because they have a hidden agenda. Trust those who are willing to share with you some hard things sometimes, things maybe you don't want to hear and have the humility to incorporate those lessons so that you can become a better person and through being a better person, be a better servant of the Lord's kingdom. And so that's how Jesus viewed servant leadership. But I want to transition to another topic in the remaining time that we have. And that is, how can a servant lead? Isn't it by the very nature of the word servant, kind of the opposite of how we think of, a, of as a leader? So how can somebody who adopts the posture of serving other people actually be in a position to lead? Well, I think that there are several things that we can keep in mind. And this is really focusing more on the work of deacons. And that is that servant leaders can lead by first leading themselves. Look in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. When the Bible here is giving the qualifications, first of elders, then of deacons, it says something about a deacon in verse number 10 that is especially relevant to this point. Scripture tells us in this list of statements about the kind of person a deacon ought to be, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Now, how do you test someone? How does a person prove themselves blameless? Now, I may not know all the particulars of this. Maybe a lot of congregations looking to appoint deacons have asked this question. How how do you test them? How, How do you find them blameless? But I know what it definitely means. And that is a deacon is in no position to lead the church who cannot be proven to lead himself. That if you are unwilling to take command of your own life, to say no to some of your own desires, to maybe give up a little bit of what you would like to do in order to help others do what they need to have done, if you're not willing to do those things, you have no business being in the office of a servant to the Lord's church. And it's a principle here that no one controls you but you. No one can make us do anything against our will. This goes back to that idea we were talking about before of having this desire to always be the victim. One of the spinoff results of that kind of desire is that nobody takes responsibility for anything anymore. Now, maybe this shouldn't surprise us because you can read about this in the Garden of Eden, right? Whenever Adam and Eve are caught sinning against the word of God, you remember what they do. They immediately start to do what? They start to blame somebody else. Uh, It's interesting, Adam, uh, he has plenty of people to blame because he blames both God and his wife. Poor old Eve, all, all she can do is blame the serpent and kind of blame herself by saying she was deceived. But the fact of the matter is the blame game is as old as the first human pair. So maybe it's human nature to seek not to accept responsibility. But once we realize that we are in charge of ourselves and we can only do the things that we choose to do, we can only feel what we choose to feel, then it helps us learn to lead ourselves. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives instructions to bond servants, as some translations have it. The Greek word really means slave. But Paul says to obey your earthly masters in everything. Why? Because you're not really working for them. Maybe you have a bad boss at work, a boss who is really mean and ugly and has very low emotional intelligence. Well, guess what? You're not really working for that guy or that that lady. You're working for the Lord. That everything we do brings honor to God or perhaps takes honor from God. And so even if you are in a position that is subservient to someone else, even if you you have no responsibility in your organization, even if you're not in charge of anybody, you can still be a leader simply by controlling yourself. Just like a servant in the first century could learn to lead by simply following the Lord. The Stoic philosophers in Roman times had a proverb, every wise man is free and every foolish man a slave. That is to say, the only true freedom is freedom of the mind, freedom of the will, and the only true slavery is giving in to our passions and desires. This is true no matter whether you are a Roman emperor, like the Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius, or whether you are a slave, like the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. People only have the control over us that we allow them to have. And so first of all, recognize that you are leading yourself every day. Nobody makes you feel a certain way. Nobody makes you do a certain thing. You choose all things. All of us are leaders because we lead ourselves. We also need to recognize that as by virtue of the fact that we lead ourselves, 
that we're responsible for changing ourselves more than others. I, I'll move through this quickly because I know this passage is familiar. But you remember this, I think this is a joke. Although when we read stuff in the Bible, we're not sure it's kosher to laugh. But Jesus says, you know, don't be trying to pick the speck out of your brother's eye when you've got a log hanging out of your eye. You know this passage. What's the point? The point is, get your own house in order before you start going next door, right? Try to take care of your own problems before you start looking at others trying to solve theirs. And so when we learn to lead ourselves, we're much more willing to deal with our own problems and try to work on that desire to become perfect and blameless in the sight of God. There is a, a story that is told of a very famous rabbi who lived in Poland at the end of the 19th century. And he was asked a question once, how could it be that he, as a single uh, a rabbi in Poland in this small community, made such a huge impact on the Jewish world? And he responded as follows, I set out to try to change the world, but I failed. So I decided to scale back my efforts and only try to influence the Jewish community of Poland, but I failed there too. So I targeted the community in my hometown of Radin, but achieved no greater success. Then I gave all my effort to changing my own family and failed at that as well. Finally, I decided to change myself, and that's how I had such an impact on the Jewish world. We can never lead anyone until we first learn to lead ourselves. But secondly, servant leaders lead those they love. I think it goes without saying, but we ought to be able to lead the best those we love the most. That's why the Bible puts such an emphasis on the domestic qualifications of both elders and deacons. In both cases, the Bible says that they ought to be able to manage their own household well. Why? Because a person who cannot handle his home is in no position to manage the church. Those who are faithful in a few things can be trusted in many things. The Bible says of deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. We talk about that a lot when it comes to elders, but rarely when it comes to deacons. Managing their children and their own households well. In other words, you ought to be the kind of person whose wife respects you and honors you, who really make for a good husband. You ought to be the kind of person whose children look up to you and honor you because you're a good father in the case of a deacon. And I think that while we're talking about the office of deacon in this passage, the same principle applies to Christian mothers. And in fact, perhaps is more common in the case of Christian mothers, that there are those domestic examples they need to be. Many of us have known ministers who have given their entire lives to the church, but given nothing to their own families. And how tragic and sad that is, that we can allow that to happen and, and, and never call people out for it. It's a example that none of us need to want to follow. We ought to be able to lead best those we love the most. And in the case of Genesis 2, we have this great text illustrating the principle. God in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, remember, gives Adam a commandment. He tells him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that he eats of it, he will surely die. But then something happens right after that. 
a really important event in the history of the world, woman is created. And then when you get to Genesis chapter 3, what you notice is that the serpent approaches the woman and not the man. Why? Could it possibly be because the woman was not there to hear God give the original commandment about the tree? That suspicion is backed up by the fact that when the woman actually reports the words of God, she doesn't report them in the way that God actually speaks them just a few verses earlier. Because she says, remember, that, that God says that we shall not uh, uh, touch or uh, eat of or touch the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Two qualifications. God said nothing about the location of the tree. He called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where did Eve get this idea about where the tree was located? Could it be that Adam was trusted with communicating this divine instruction to her? And in the midst of communicating it, he tried to clarify. Now, now it's this tree right here. I know a lot of these trees look the same, but it's the one right in the middle. You can't miss it. And by the way, God said, don't eat of it, but don't even touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it. And when they pick the fruit, when they get it into their hands, that's not when their eyes are opened, is it? It's only when they take a bite of the fruit. And in fact, in verse 6 of chapter 3, we know that Adam was right there with her the entire time. Not like the pictures our kids color in Bible class where Eve is all alone with the serpent. But the Bible says he was there. A failure of leadership is responsible for the very first sin because Adam proved incapable of leading the best, the one he ought to have loved the most. Jesus asked the question, what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We modify that. What does it profit a leader to gain all the power in the world and lose his own family? Servant leaders lead their families first and best. But then the next point, the final point for tonight, servant leaders ought to love those they lead. I mean, genuinely love people. I know some people are hard to love. I'm hard to love sometimes. I'm well aware of that. But good leaders love those they lead. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7, Paul writes in words famous, so famous in fact that we sing them in a beautiful song, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love not only has the ability to see the best in others, but also to seek the best for others. Whenever somebody announces an accomplishment, do we grow jealous or do we have the desire to celebrate with them? Whenever somebody does something that maybe even calls attention to them, out, uh, surpassing even our own qu uh, qualifications and accomplishments, do we sort of sit back and sulk and say, that should have been me? Or do we rush to them and congratulate them on that recognition? Love makes all the difference in the world. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, Scripture tells the churches that are facing persecution in that area, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, love doesn't think about judgment first. There are some people, it seems, that whenever anything good is spoken to them, they're going to find the most negative way to respond possible. That's because they've never experienced the love of Christ. They may have never seen it, but they certainly have never felt it. Servant leaders are willing to reach out to people with love 
and make them feel valuable because they are valuable. Every human being was created in the eyes of God equal. Every human being was created in the image of Christ equal at baptism. Every human being was created in the image of God. And because of that, all of us have value. We all have something we can contribute. And whenever we see others through the filter of the love of God, we're much more willing to serve them and to help them be in the best position they can be to accomplish the goals they need as God's children. In conclusion, a deacon is an office, but that word is really found only five times in your English translations in the official sense. Far more often when the Bible uses the word translated deacon, it uses it in an unofficial sense, a way applicable to all of us. And so while we may not occupy the office of a church leader, all of us can be servant leaders, making the kingdom of God better. Because a deacon, ultimately in the New Testament, is simply a person who's willing to serve and to meet the needs of others. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for blessing us with the structure of your church where we can trust that we are led by elders who love you and love the church and deacons who serve the needs of the church and execute the will of both you and the eldership. We're grateful for that structure and how healthy it is when it functions the way you intended. But we're also mindful, Father, of the fact that all of us are leaders. We are all in a position to influence the people around us, to lead our families, and to change the world. Help us to take that responsibility seriously, to implement the lessons that your word sets forth for servant leadership. Help us to remain humble and kind and filled with love when we look out to a world that seems increasingly to know less and less about you. Help us to take a stand for what's right. Help us to teach what's right and oppose what's wrong. In Jesus' name, amen.